Good morning. Welcome. As Andrew and Karen just mentioned, you've joined us in our final week of a seven-week series, Disciples Who Make New Disciples Who Make New Disciples. And over the last six weeks, we've been using this analogy of a tree as something of a framework, a discipleship framework. And can you believe it was six weeks ago when Kev kicked off this series and he started by speaking about the trunk, that the trunk of the tree uh, uh, talks about the discipleship role of the church gathered, the body, and we were speaking about Sunday gatherings, home groups, home churches, uh, one-on-one discipleship, profoundly important discipleship environments. And then we spent three weeks uh, below the surface and we were in that place of, of individual intentionality of being grounded in Jesus. Andrew spoke about our core belief, like our, our taproot. This is our very heart from which the rest of life overflows. Kev spoke about truth and he reminded us that truth is a person and that that person is Jesus. And I spoke about practice, practices that would rehabituate us toward the kingdom. And now in this last two weeks, we've been thrashing about in the branches and this is the place of evidence, evidence of a transformed life, the place of fruit. We've been looking at the fruit of God at work in my life and God at work through my life. And so now we come to our final message in this series. And today we are talking about the evidence of increasing love for God and others. And it's our contention that to increase in love for God and others and to do so in a manner that resembles Christ himself, that this is the ambition of the Christian life. It's the best evidence of transformation because it bears witness to our part in God's plan of renewal, that we ourselves are being renewed. We are being made whole and more than that, we are also agents of this renewal in the world. And if it is apparent that our love for God and our love for others is growing, then we stand as evidence. We stand as testimony to the Holy Spirit's renewing work in the world. And this project of renewal is the mission of God. And you might have heard that before, the mission of God or Missio Dei, the renewal of all things by the Spirit. The mission of God is to bring all things together into and under Christ. It is to restore the order or the law of this world to the order or to the law of the kingdom. And so we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's always been God's plan to restore all things to himself. And there are the two facets of this mission that we've looked at in the last two weeks. There is God at work in my life where I am the object of this transformation. I am the thing that's being renewed, that's being reconciled. And so there should be evidence of that. 
And also God at work through my life. I am also an agent of transformation. He uses me to be an instrument of renewal in the world around me. And so there should be evidence of that too. And the other way of saying this, of course, is that we participate in his mission as disciples who make new disciples. Our transformation is evidence of God's mission. And evidence matters. He wants his people to bear witness, to testify, to be a light to the nations. And this evidence of transformation, it's, it's not just something that, that we carry individually, but the whole point is that we embody this evidence collectively as the body of Christ, the ecclesia, the people gathered. A new social option was a phrase we used a few weeks ago. And the ultimate demonstration of this transformation of this new society is love. And this is why Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That will be the evidence. Love is God's vision for community because it is consistent with his own triune community. Father, Son and Spirit, the eternal community of love. And you'll remember that the Apostle John um, tries to sum this up when he says that whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Our triune God exists eternally and perfectly as a dynamic and creative community of love. And then right from the get-go, right from when breath first enters the first human being, the writer of Genesis declares that human beings are made in the image of this God. We are made in the image of love. And in fact, all of creation bears the mark of its triune creator. Father Richard Rohr is a Franciscan priest and theologian. And, and there might be some things that you, you read of Rohr's you might not agree with, but, but he is absolutely worth paying attention to. And in his book called The Essential Teachings on Love, he writes, Trinity is the template for all reality. And it makes perfect sense because God, who is Father, Son and Spirit, he proceeds and he initiates all reality. All of creation exists out of and as an expression of this eternal triune relationship. Trinity is the template for all reality. And since this triune God is love, then we can say that love is the metaphysical foundation of everything because Trinity is the model for all reality. Raw goes on and he says that if Trinity, if Trinity reveals that God is relationship, relationship itself, then the goal of the spiritual journey, the goal of discipleship is to discover and it is moved toward, to move toward connectedness 
on ever new levels. The goal of the spiritual journey, the goal of discipleship, the goal of the mission of God is to increasingly recover, to embody and to contribute to the loving connectedness of the triune community itself. And so if you thought that you were just part of some puny and private religion that was just about being good and avoiding hell, then you probably need to think again. As we increase in love, we grow in resemblance of ultimate reality. And this resemblance, it's meant to increase. It's meant to grow as we go along this discipleship journey. It's not meant to plateau. Paul, when, when he's writing to the, to the Corinthian believers, he says, so, so all of us who have had that veil removed, so that means that there's, there's no separation between us and God because sin has been, has been dealt with. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. And so this is God's idea. He's doing it. By his spirit within us, we are being increasingly transformed into his image, the image of love. This is the evidence that we're looking for. So let's make sure we're on the same page with this idea of love, that we're talking about the same thing. What is this love that must increase? And, and you may well know this, but the kind of love that, that John is using to describe God is agape. It is selfless love. It involves forsaking of the self for the flourishing of the other. It is self-emptying. It is kenotic. And this is the core nature of God. This is why Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So Jesus is saying that, that the self-emptying way that he has loved the disciples is a direct reflection of the way the Father loves the Son. It is true to type. It is in their nature. His command then is that we would continue the same pattern. To love one another the same lay your life down kind of way that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for us. This is how we are recognised as Jesus' disciples. And you know, the, the Great Commission says the same things. To, to, to go and make new disciples is simply this. As loved people, go and love people into becoming the kind of people who go and love people. 
When we love each other in this lay your life down way, we remain, we abide in the love of Father and Son. In other words, we participate in the eternal community of love and that is the entire gospel. This community of self-givenness, it was the original pattern the original template. And according to the Genesis narrative, this is precisely what was lost in the garden. Instead of our love and our desire being outward focused on God and on one another, like it is in the Trinity, it curved inward. It curved back on ourselves. And we became the object of our own attention and of our own affection. And the consequences continue to be catastrophic. But even so... God has not let go of us because that's his nature. His project, his mission has been to restore us, to restore all of us to loving oneness. Reconnecting what has been pulled apart by sin and by death. Get, get this. So, so this is just a freebie, right? Um, diabolical means... Uh, of the devil, the character of the devil. That's diabolical. Uh, Diablo is the Latin name for the, de for the devil. The, the verb, however, has Greek roots and, and it means to throw apart. It means to separate. And so the work of the devil is to separate, to throw apart, to scatter. And religion, at its root comes from the word religio, which means to re-ligament, to reconnect, to bind back together. It's even where we get Lego from. So true and proper religion is gathering up all of the broken pieces, the pieces that have been thrown apart, and to join them back together. And that's what love does. It connects. It binds together by being relentlessly focused on the other. So I hope you can see it. This is why love for God and love for others is the greatest commandment. To love God and love others fulfills the entirety of the law and the prophets because it is utterly consistent with the triune person of God himself. It is the ultimate pattern of relationship. This is why Jesus could say, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus fulfills the law because the ultimate law is love. And who is Jesus but the incarnation of love itself? And this is why, apart from Christ, we can never fulfill the demands of this law but within Christ we not only find eternal life and love we also find our true humanity Raw writes your true self is who you are and have always been in God and at its core your true self is love itself. Love is both who you are and who you are still becoming. I really like that.
So here's where we're up to. That as the ultimate evidence of a transformed life, we would increase in love for God and others. And this transformation, this love, is actually evidence of the mission of God in this world. It is the work of reconciliation. It is the work of the renewal of all things according to his perfect and eternal order. And that perfect order is love. It is self-giving love. Love that resembles the inner relational dynamic of the Trinity itself. So that's part one. Here's part two. I want to connect, or try, I want to connect this evidence all the way back down below the surface, back to our taproot, back to our core belief. And, and there are three layers of evidence that I can see. And the first is that increasing love for God and others is evidence of freedom. The second is that freedom is evidence of dying to self. And third is that dying to self is evidence of core belief grounded in Jesus. So increasing love of God and others is evidence of freedom. Well, what freedom am I talking about? True freedom is freedom from sin. Because it is sin that separates us from God. And it is this estrangement from God that leads to death. Sin is diabolical. Sin at its core is a rejection of God's way, of God's order of things in favour of, of our own. We want to be our own little gods. This was the original sin. It's the only sin. We just keep making up new ways to do it. Right back in Genesis 3, where the serpent is tempting uh, Adam and Eve, tempting Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, tempting them to define good and evil on their own terms, actually. The temptation, the way the enemy, the serpent phrased it was, you will be like God. And they couldn't resist. And we all have this in our nature. We all want to be like God. As fallen humans left to our own devices, we're hardwired to seek our own will above anyone else's, to love ourselves over and above and instead of God and others. We want our way in life. We want it on our terms. We want our own little kingdoms. And the word for this is autonomos, self-law. And it's where we get autonomy from. And every type of brokenness, every kind of division that you can imagine is the fruit of self-law. And it turns out that, that autonomous, that self-law, self-love, that this is slavery of the most brutal and the most eternal kind. And the weight of it, the persistence of it, the emptiness of it, the insatiability of it is unbearable. And so ultimate freedom is freedom from self-love. And this is going to come as a surprise to many of you who think that maybe we can't love anyone else until we first love ourselves. The truth is that this is not Christian teaching. It is actually totally misleading and it's a complete dead end. Self-love 
is the root cause of every failed relationship. And ultimately, self-love separates us from the source of life and love, and it leaves us fending for ourselves. If the only reservoir of love that we have to love out of is the love that we have for ourselves, then it is a very shallow and fickle and tainted pond. James calls self-love pride and selfish ambition. Paul calls it the flesh and you can call it self-interest, you can call it independence, you can even call it shame. Self-love is sin and we have become slaves to it. And although it is sold as freedom, sometimes even by Christians, it is nothing of the sort. While ever we live in preoccupation with our own lives, thinking that the source of love is within our independent selves, we will never be free to love God and others with the love that he has for us. Listen to how Paul reminds the early believers of this. And remember, he's talking to Christians here. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And I'm going to come back to this as yourself bit in a minute. But he goes on, and I like how the message translation puts this. He says, my counsel is this, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of self-interest. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with the free spirit. Just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical. True freedom and self-interest are incompatible. Those who are free to love God and love others must be set free from the slavery of loving ourselves. And it is only through, it is only within Christ that such freedom is possible. And this is where it gets tough and many fall away because the only way to do away with sinful self-interest, Jesus tells us, is to put it to death. To follow Jesus to freedom, to join together in Christ, is to die to self. Freedom is evidence of dying to self. Love in the way that it's embodied by Jesus is self-sacrificial. It is cruciform. To love others the way Jesus demonstrates requires that we die to self and then paradoxically it is in this dying to self that we find life and freedom. Jesus says for those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, separate, 
but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. And Paul took Jesus at his word and he declares, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I that live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So essentially this Christian life is an ongoing process of dying to self. It is crucifying the flesh, Paul says. It is seeking his will, his kingdom, his righteousness rather than our own. It is giving up the illusion every day that we are independent, that we are self-made, that we are self-sufficient. It is giving up the lie that if I'm going to be okay, then I have to look after number one. And interestingly in Scripture, this dying to self is never portrayed as something optional. This is Jesus speaking. He says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one friend's. Uh, you are my friends if you do what I command. This is how I've loved you, by laying my life down for you. Now, friends... My commandment is that you love others the same way. It's not optional. And here's an important point, and it's kind of obvious. This self-sacrificial love is a function of relationship. Kev reminded us last week, it's not a solo sport. Death to self happens in the context of and for the purpose of community. It's an echo of the triune relationship. So if we are to image God, we do so in a community of mutual self-emptying. And that community is the church. It is the ecclesia. It is the people gathered. And it makes sense. It is only in community that I can take my eyes off myself for a moment. Because when agape is mutual, when self-giving is reciprocated, which it is in God, then I can find the courage to self-sacrificially love God with all my heart, all my mind and soul and strength, and to love my neighbour as myself. And I can do this in the confidence that I too am safely held in loving community. Now, I want to unpack this love my neighbour as myself idea a little bit because I think we can be wrong-footed as we read this commandment. Jesus is answering the, the question here. 
question that was put to him to, to trick him. The question was, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus is responding. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So far, so good. The second is equally important. Love your neighbour as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. When, when Jesus commands, love your neighbour as yourself, he's making a statement about dying to self and about community. Love my neighbour as myself does not mean to use my self-love as the standard by which I love others. Nor does it mean that my self-love is the precondition or the launch pad from which I love others. I hope we've kind of dismantled that idea. Rather, the larger meaning of this command is to recognise that in Christ we are one. And to love my neighbour is to love myself because we are one body. To love my neighbour as myself is to give up loving myself as some separate thing and to love others as the means by which I love and care for the body of which I am a part. To love others as myself is to die to self in recognition that we are one, that we are reconnected. And this is the ultimate design. It, this is the Trinitarian order of love. And therefore, it is the law of the kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, this mutual cruciformity ensures that I do not need to worry about what I will eat or what I will drink or what I will wear. With great confidence, knowing that my needs are not a problem, I am free to put self-interest aside and to love God and love others as myself. And I look forward to the day where we can live in the fullness of this, but I want the vision of it to shape me even now. To love others the Jesus way is to die to self. I like how Nikki Wilson-Smith uh, articulates this. She says, Just as a tree is pruned and then it produces an abundance of sweet fruit, as we crucify our flesh, our love for God and others will grow. This really is the purpose of dying to self, becoming love just as God's chief characteristic is love. We will only be free to love when we give up control. We will only give up control when we are convinced in the very depths of our soul, in our very core of our beliefs, that Jesus was right, that he was right about everything. Dying to self is evidence of our core belief grounded in Jesus. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. This is the Father's declaration of identity 
and of reality over his son. You are my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And then scandal of scandals, it is with this same love that the father has for the son that we are invited into. You imagine if the truth of this got so deep into your heart that it was your singular core belief that you are the the dearly loved, you are dearly loved by God, that you are loved with the same love with which he has eternally and perfectly loved the son and that you bring him great joy. Increasing love for God and others is evidence of freedom. Freedom is evidence of dying to self and dying to self is evidence of a taproot in Jesus, a core belief that says, I am dearly loved. When we know that we are the beloved, that this is the very epicentre of our existence, then we are free to confess our sins. We are free to forgive others. We are free to live generous lives. And we are free to love because he first loved us. And this is not a love that we, that we manufacture or that we conjure up. It is the love of God overflowing because Christ himself lives within us. It's his love. It is the spirit of God alive and overflowing. And so do you see there is only one taproot that leads to a life that is increasing in love for God and others. It is the unshakable truth that you are loved, made and continually transformed in the image of the crucified Christ. You are the offspring of love itself. You are the embodiment of love itself. You are the object of love itself and you are the agent of love itself. Now I do need to say that there are, there are false taproots and I'm talking to professing Christians here. False core beliefs that might sound right but don't bear the good fruit of love. And so we need to be vigilant. Firstly, there's the, there's the belief that says, and Andrew spoke about this a few weeks ago, there's the core belief that says that I'm nothing more than a dirty, rotten sinner. That sin, instead of being a condition that has been dealt with by Jesus, actually constitutes my core identity. And in this belief, love is pushed to the margins as something merciful that God may or may not do. Such a core belief will not lead to a life that naturally identifies and celebrates the God image in others. Rather, obligation and punishment loom larger than love. Second is the core belief that says that now that I'm saved, God wants only to prosper me, to bless me, to heal me. And though this belief does acknowledge the generosity of God, it often does not lead to, the free, to freedom from comparison or freedom from self-interest. And it certainly does not image our cruciform Lord who came to suffer and who came to serve. And third, and there's certainly more, is this core belief that says I must earn God's love. Whether it's in my achievement or my good deeds, or in my possessions, or my appearance. The belief that I must earn God's love never releases me from the grips of slavery. 
If this is my taproot, then loving God and loving others are just two more things that I have to add to my list to earn his favour. There is only one true core belief, one valid taproot that you are the beloved of God, that you bring him great joy. Raw says, love of others is evidence of inner freedom. It is evidence that we are secure in our belovedness and no longer do we need to strive for acceptance or value. This is where we've landed, where I'm wrapping up. As we grow in our deepest convictions that we are truly loved, so we can safely relinquish control of our own life, and as we die to self, we are paradoxically set free. Free to truly and quite naturally love God and others with the same love that he has for us. And this is the entire discipleship journey. As loved people, we go and love people into becoming the kind of people who go and love people. And so my question is this, where are you on this journey? Did you start and then stall, plateau somewhere along the way? Are you running full tilt in the opposite direction? Are you growing in ever-increasing love or perhaps this is the first time that you've ever even heard such things? Let me say, if the fruit you see is not the fruit you want, then I invite you into this discipleship journey and it's a terrible and wonderful and lifelong journey and it will turn you inside out and it takes courage and it takes vulnerability and it takes humility and you simply can't do it on your own. If any of this is striking a chord within you today, do something. Reach out to a friend who might be a little bit further along the path. Contact the church office. Reach out to us on social media. Get serious about being apprenticed to Jesus, about being disciples who make new disciples who make new disciples. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to pray a passage of scripture that Kev referenced last week. It is Ephesians 3. Verses 14 to 21, so let's pray. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, a, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through His Spirit, and that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you might have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.